0: If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to this show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data rails, this is FPNA today. Hello everyone, welcome to FP&A Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FP&A Guy, and you are listening to FP&A Today. FP&A Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis, and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything fp and I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Michael King. Michael, welcome to
1: the show. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for making some time for us. So let me just go ahead and tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael comes to us from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He studied at Auburn and Old Dominion University. He started out his career working for the Navy. He was a nuclear engineer on submarines. And currently today, he runs his own fractional CFO firm, and he also helps others start and grow their own fractional CFO businesses. So Michael, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Yeah, like you said, you know, I started on submarines for 11 years and uh, oversaw the operation of nuclear power plants. And then from there, I made the obvious career transition into plywood manufacturing and, and spent a couple of years in plywood manufacturing. And then uh, decided to go to business school and, and learn a little bit more about business. I realized I didn't want to be in engineering any longer and worked for a SaaS company for a number of years after that. And then started my own uh, fractional CFO firm seven years ago this month, which is pretty exciting. I've been doing that, like I said, for about seven years. And then a year and a half ago, I decided to help other people in the industry start scaling, optimize their fractional CFO firms as well. So there's the elevator version of my background.
0: Thank you, and I appreciate that. So I'm uh, curious, how did plywood manufacturing, how did that become the first transition?
1: Well, there was a, interestingly in Virginia, where I left the naval service right down the road was a plywood mill and they happened to be hiring an engineer that needed a background in thermodynamics. And I happened to be an engineer with a background in thermodynamics and the pay was right. And so uh, there's not a lot of thermodynamics jobs in that area outside of the military. So that was a, a great place for me to start.
0: So obviously, like you said, it was the right transition. Just doesn't sound like it when you hear. Nuclear power plant engineer, plywood manufacturing.
1: Yeah. Turns out thermodynamics are thermodynamics, regardless of uh, what the, the heat source is, the properties of heat transfer, they're, they're the same everywhere.
0: And that makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way. I just wouldn't have thought about it. So thank you. That's helpful. Of course. You went back to school and you worked for a SaaS company, and I'm assuming you did finance there with the SaaS company, is that?
1: Close, I was actually in business analytics, which tied a lot uh, with finance, but I think there's an interesting story here on how I went from plywood back to business school that I think that your listeners might be intrigued by. Sure,
0: we'd love to hear that.
1: Yeah, because there's a lot of my why and what I do now based on an experience I had one day at the plywood mill. So I, I started there as an engineer, like I said, but through a random turn of events, I found myself running the plywood mill about a year after I got there. And so in that role, I had p accountability for a $90 million a year p and And, you know, that, that was great. But based on my background in engineering and military service, I wasn't really sure what PRL stood for, much less how to be accountable for it. And so in the role, I had a controller and, and some staff accountants that reported to me. And every couple of weeks, these ladies would bring me a, a stack of reports. And, you know, I said, hey, just leave those in my inbox. I'll take a look after lunch. And they would leave the office and I would start frantically Googling, you know, what are these reports telling me? And, you know, what is IRR? You know, and these kinds of, I have no idea what these acronyms even mean. But as you might imagine, you're not going to Google your way into a $90 million a year p and So after a few weeks in the role, I got up the courage. I went to the controller's office who had this mom kind of feel to me. She was about my mom's age and just a sweet Southern lady. And I said, uh, Miss Denise, can you help me understand what these reports are telling me? She looks at me and she says, bless your little heart, sit down. And so I sit down in her office and the experience was a little bit like, if you ever gone to a sports enthusiast around a sport, you don't know anything about maybe like lacrosse or rugby. Sure. And you ask this enthusiast, how does rugby work? And they get really excited and they start talking loud and they start talking fast, but they're using rugby words to explain other rugby words and your head's just spinning. And you're like, look, I just wanna know how do they score? And that's what my experience was like that day in the controller's office. She's using finance terms to explain other finance terms. And I eventually just said, you know, hey, timeout. I appreciate it, but this is what I need. I need to understand how to use the information in these reports to make smarter decisions in the business tomorrow. And she paused for a second and she looked at me and she said, well, sweetie, that's your job, not mine. And I was like, okay, (laughs) but she wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong, that was my job, but I didn't have the tools in my toolbox to know how to do that. And so that was where I said, look, I really like this business thing a whole lot more than I like the engineering thing. And I decided to go get an MBA. And that was really the driver. As I said, I want to understand the mechanics of how these financial reports are generated so that I can use them as a tool to make more informed decisions in the business. But you know what ended up happening is I get to business school, first day in graduate, I don't remember if it was finance or accounting, graduate level, you know, finance or accounting. And I'm sitting there, there's a PhD up there. And he was doing the same thing that Miss Denise had done, using the terms to explain other terms. In all through business school, I really struggled with this disconnect that I felt was there in really turning the data in the reports into actionable information that a business owner could understand and leverage and use to make smarter decisions in the business. And so I finished business school and I did go to that SaaS company for a number of years and I learned a ton about SaaS. But I realized that my passion was really around that, you know, how do we help business owners understand their numbers so that they can make better decisions? And, you know, seven years ago when I started this, fractional CFOs weren't really a thing. I mean, you heard about them a little bit in the SaaS world, but outside of the SaaS world, you really didn't hear about it much, you know, it didn't really exist. And so I was more of a consultant back then, but really focusing on helping small business owners really kind of understand what's going on. And over the years it's kind of morphed and branded itself into this fractional CFO thing, but you know that's kind of how I got in the game and that's why I'm in the game and that's why I'm passionate about it because I felt that gap, you know, and when you think of the fact that, you know, 50% of small businesses don't make it 5 years, 80% don't make it to the 10-year mark, when you dive into the data, the vast majority aren't failing because of a bad product or a bad service. Most of them are failing because they make bad financial decisions. And I said, this is my thing. This is my calling. I'm going to help business owners avoid that fate of failing due to bad financial decisions.
0: That's a great place to be. And I can tell you have a passion for it. And I love your story because I can picture the controller there, a little lady just talking to you in finance terms. And you're like, plain English, please. You know, and it's obvious. It's not like you weren't intelligent. It's just an area you hadn't learned, right? I mean, nuclear engineering has its own words and acronyms and things that you have to learn. And. Yeah, you know, I've typically found some of the best finance people I work with come from an engineering background because it gives you a very solid analytical background to transfer into finance. So I've always really enjoyed working with people that started as engineers and made that switch to FP&A. I've had a handful over my career. Great story there. I appreciate that. So maybe just kind of stepping back for a minute, going back to working for the Navy. How did your experience working for the Navy, being in the military, prepare you for where you're at today? Maybe- Talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you took from that experience.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you a quick military strategy lesson here. The type of submarine I was on, there's always at least one on either coast of the United States that's deployed 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And this type of submarine is literally waiting for World War III to start. You know, we carry an arsenal of nuclear weapons. We're waiting for the bad guys to do something stupid so that we can respond and, you know, mutually assured destruction and all that kind of stuff. But because of the just absolute requirement for those submarines to be deployed at all times, there's no excuses. When it's your turn to, for the the submarine to get underway, there's no, hey, we weren't able to get underway because of this, or the reactor plant's not ready. And so it really fosters this can-do You've got to just adapt, improvise, and overcome. you got to figure it out. you got to get the submarine underway. And I think that has been an absolute vital tool for me as a business owner and somebody that works with other business owners is, you know, as the CEO of of your own firm or of a business, you've got to deliver the service. You You can't let these excuses creep in. And, you know, a lot of times they're what I call artificial hurdles. You know, it's not really, we make excuses for things when the reality is it could have happened. So that has served me really well as a business owner and somebody that works with other firm owners is just this mindset that we're going to get it done. We're going to get that submarine underway, whatever it takes.
0: That's a great takeaway from that. Because like you said, you can't have an excuse. Sorry, this isn't working. We'll deploy tomorrow. No, you're going today. Figure it out. Be prepared, right? And I can totally see how that with small businesses of like, okay, what are our options? How do we get it done? Let's just figure out the path forward. Because there's pretty much always a way to do it. Now, there's a question of whether the cost and other things make sense, especially in the business world, but there's almost always a way to do it. So it makes a lot of sense. So maybe can you start, you know, you talked a little bit about CFO. You mentioned how early on that you used the term, you're viewed more as a consultant. So can maybe describe to our audience, what is a fractional CFO and what are the typical roles and responsibilities they have?
1: Sure. I like explaining this with a compare and a contrast. So let's let's take, everybody kind of knows, think of like an accountant, a bookkeeper, a tax preparer is our fourth point of reference. They've spent their entire careers learning how to report on what happened in the past. And that is an absolutely essential deliverable that small businesses, midsize, large, everyone needs it, right? We've got to understand for compliance purposes and reporting and all these things what happened in the past. The reality though, is that business owners, C-suite, again, this publicly traded company, privately held small, large business, the stakeholders, the shareholders are normally more focused on what's going to happen in the future, right? Their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, those things all live in the future. The CFO's job, and I'll speak just from the fractional CFO's perspective, your job is to bridge where the finances are at today and connect them with that forward-looking perspective that the business owners have. Your job is to put, take their goals, whatever they are, and put the numbers behind them to determine if their strategies and tactics are going to produce the profitabilities, the cash flows, etc., that those business owners and shareholders need to be successful to hit their goals.
0: That makes sense. I think that was really well described. And I like, hey, the forward-looking and the backward-looking. I've heard different ways of describing it, but I really like how you brought that together. So let's say you know, somebody needs a fractional CFO, what does that company look like? What's the ideal candidate for, you know, looking to get a fractional CFO? You
1: know, the, the quick answer is it depends, but I think the most important characteristic that's a common thread, I've been doing this a long time now, I've coached hundreds of firm owners now. The common thread that I see o- across businesses, regardless of industry or size, is that they've got this growth mindset. They're looking to grow, they're looking to evolve, they've got big goals. Right, Because your job is, like I said, is the fractional CFO is to help them figure out what's coming and and how to navigate to those things. So if a business is is content with where they are, and that's okay, theories or philosophies on that might vary, but if they're just kind of happy with the status quo, they're not looking to change anything, then I would argue that a fractional CFO's value is going to be limited in those cases. Now, you can get into size of companies and industries and you know all of that, I think, is kind of a, a matter of opinion. It, when it makes sense to hire a fractional CFO, as an example, a, a SaaS company that's pre-revenue, that's looking to raise capital, they need a, a fractional CFO a lot earlier than, say, a brick-and-mortar company or a manufacturing company, as an example, right? A, a controller, accountants, they would typically come in prior to the fractional CFO. So a lot of it just really depends on the industry and where they're at and what they're trying to do. But that common thread is growth. They're looking to grow. They're looking to do new things and bigger things. Thanks
0: for that explanation. And that makes sense to me. The whole idea of growing is a good way to look at it, right? If a company, the founder's done well, he's happy with the money. He doesn't look to grow at all. It's a business that he's just comfortable with. Why spend the money? What are you going to advise them on? Your P&L looks the same it did last month. Yeah. That'll be $500, please, or whatever, right? It's just, it's hard to bring them value. Exactly. And you want to make sure you're able to bring value. So that makes a lot of sense to me. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel. Embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarels.com. So, you know, next thing I wanted to ask about a little bit, you recently, I think it was a year and a half ago now you mentioned, but you created a program to help train and prepare other people to start a fractional CFO service. So could you talk about what led you to do that? How did that come about?
1: I go and speak at different events and, you know, all all the things. And as I'm talking about my firm and, and the things that we've done over the years, I would inevitably get one or two accountants that were in the audience or someone in the financial field that says, Hey, I'd love to hear, how did you build your firm, you know, or or what were the tricks? Do you do any coaching? Do you work with people on how you did it? And I, no, 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 I'm focused right here on this thing. That's not what we do. And about a year and a half ago, I recognized I kind of worked myself out of a job. I had built a team around me and and the team was executing really well within my firm. And, And a bored entrepreneur is a very dangerous entrepreneur. And, you know, I'm sitting around and this lady, uh, Shannon Weinstein, uh, who's the CPA that I had met at, a, at an event three or four years prior when I was talking, uh, she DM'd me again. And she said, Hey, I want to bug you again. Have you thought about helping firm owners offer advisory services? And I said, you know what? I'm actually kind of bored right now. And I said, I, I think there's a need for it. The industry's growing and I see it around me. And you know, I said, let's do it. And so um, I started about a year and a half ago with the CFO Accelerator. And our mission is just to help, you know, accountants and fractional CFOs start, scale, and optimize their advisory services so that they can go out and have more impacts with their, the small businesses and medium-sized businesses that they serve.
0: So what are the offerings you have with the program? Like what's included in the program? Maybe a little bit about what that looks like.
1: So I've got a podcast and a YouTube channel called the CFO Accelerator, or actually it's called the CFO Report. That's absolutely free. I've got a a weekly newsletter that I put out called the Five Minute Fractional CFO. That's just, you know, every Friday I deliver a, a tip that you can read in five minutes that'll help you start scale or optimize your services. And that, like I said, that's free as well. And then I've got a program called the Inner Circle. And that's a community of people that are offering advisory services that get together in Slack and once a month, I go live and I teach on something that I'm seeing in the industry, a best practice, a process, a procedure, uh, just something that I think would add value and help people with their firms. I go live for a month and I teach on you know something that's relevant to the industry. And then the next day, I go live for an hour and I just take questions. So that's like our community's opportunity to come in and pick my brain and my team's brain. So that's called the inner circle. Then I've also got a course called the CFO Academy, which are the seven playbooks that I use to run my firm. We really pulled the curtains and and we shared literally all of our processes and procedures from how we think about CFO services to our packages and pricing, sales, onboarding, financial analysis, report delivery, like all the things. It's literally how we run our business. And then I also have a program, a, a live conference. It's the first one to the best of my knowledge ever called the CFO Accelerator Live. And that's gonna be here in Dallas, May 16th through 18th. It's gonna be three days of me on stage pouring out seven frameworks I've never shared before on how to start scale and optimize your firm. And we're gonna focus on CFO technical skills, CFO leadership skills, and CFO firm building skills. So those are the, the ways that people work with me.
0: Great, thank you for sharing. Sounds like a really good, robust program you got going there. You know, speaking of kind of CFO work, how does FP&A fit into all this with the fractional CFO? What, you know, how much
1: of the work you're doing is FP&A related? Yeah, I think FP&A is really important for fractional CFOs, right? Because, you know, like I was talking about a minute ago at the event, there's the, the CFO technical skills and then there's CFO leadership skills. FP&A really gets people ready for those CFO technical skills. You know, so when I think about FP&A, I'm thinking about things like, you know, forecasts, projections, budgets and models, data management. I'm thinking about reporting and how we, you know, display that, whether it's pitch decks or or KPIs and dashboards. But I also think like communications across functional divisions within a business. You know, so when I think of FP&A, those are kind of the four main buckets I'm thinking about. And that's a huge part of what a fractional CFO has to understand. Because the reality is most, I would say the vast majority of small businesses and a lot of even medium-sized businesses, they don't have that FP&A function internally. And so as a fractional CFO, you can really step into that role. Now, the, where the gap is, is on that CFO leadership side. You've got to learn, as someone that understands FP&A, how to convert or translate the things that you're seeing in the models, in the projections, in the reports You've got to connect that with the shareholders or the stakeholders' goals and aspirations, what they're trying to do. And that's where that leadership part really starts to come in is the collaboration with the CEO, CMO, CRO, et cetera, and connecting those two. So I think, you know, FP&A is an awesome place to start if you want to move into a career as a fractional CFO.
0: Do you see a lot of people, you know, nowadays making that transition from kind of being in an FP&A role to being a fractional CFO? Or what do you typically see? What's the background?
1: You know, there's a lot of folks that come from the, the accounting side that have moved into it. But we're definitely starting to see more people that are coming from that, like the management accounting side, if you will, starting to see more of that, more of the FP&A background, and they're doing really well with it because they understand that a lot of times in that FP&A role, especially if you've worked in corporate, you understand how that collaboration has to work from operations to finance. And and that's such an important skill to have as a financial leader.
0: I agree. And the way I like to think of it is, FP&A really has a 360 view. And they're one of the few people in the organization that has that, especially if you're in a smaller org where you're doing FP&A for the entire company. You really get to see... All the inner workings, where you know very few people get that CFO does, you know CEO to a certain extent, but even CEO sees it all, but not at the detail and the way FP&A sees it. So you can really understand the collaboration and the partnering, and can bring insights that you don't get
1: from other areas of the business. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's almost like a cheat. You know, you almost have this unfair advantage with that 360 view, especially when you have an understanding of operations. You know, when you really understand how operational tactics impact cash flows and profitability, maybe even into taxes, you can really start to make smarter strategic decisions. When you understand the implications of the tactical decisions, and like you said, very few other people have one foot in both of those doors. So,
0: hundred percent agree. And you know, I've mentioned this to people who work in finance. I've always been a big believer: go have at least one role in the business beyond FP&A. You know, I started. Working procurement, and then I went back to school. And before I did FP&A, I did a, a role where I was kind of a business analyst, did a lot of report writing, development, you know, some data stuff. And it served me extremely well when I switched in the business. And then I worked for one company where they had me do a lot of operation stuff, like I developed sales commission plans, even though I was FP&A. And I got involved in a lot of pricing decisions and discussions, and getting to see how it all really fits together was invaluable. Versus, okay, I just spent my day in a spreadsheet. You know, you, you don't learn how the business works in Excel. Yes, you understand a lot of numbers and how things hang together, but without that getting out and talking, that collaboration, you're missing a crucial part.
1: I don't, this may be a, an unpopular opinion. I don't know, but I'll throw it out there. I think that folks that excel in FP&A, if they're interested, they're actually set up uniquely as a COO, sometimes more than a CFO. Because of that understanding of the finance and the operational piece, so you know if you really get into those roles, like you talked about, Paul, where you're you're you know dipping and dabbling with operations, it can make a lot of sense to transition from a like an FP&A level, like a manager or director, into a a VP of Ops or a COO role, because again, you've got that understanding of both worlds. And very few people in operations have the understanding of the finance side. That could be a career path as well.
0: That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it directly that way, but I mean, you see more and more, especially small to mid-sized companies, where you see the CFO and COO being the same hat. And I've seen a number of people I know where, hey, they're the they're the CFO, but they're also the COO because they understand the operations side. And when you yep. understand the operations, you understand the finances behind it, it. Makes it easier to drive those decisions to the bottom line, to where they make an actual difference to the EBITDA or the revenue. Where sometimes when you have someone who's disconnected from the finance, they may make a good operational decision, but not realize the negative impact it can sometimes have on the financials because of the cost element that they're not as close to.
1: Again, it's almost unfair. You can really go whichever direction you want, you know, CFO or or COO. Or, you know, you can do like some do and just start your own business. That's what I decided to do. (laughs) That, That too. That too.
0: So- You know, we talk about FP&A work with small businesses. You know, how important is budgeting and forecasting? And what does it typically look like when you come into these companies?
1: Look, budgeting and forecasting is everything, okay? Especially in the fractional CFO role or or even an FP&A role in a small business. Because the budgeting and the forecasting gives that owner and the shareholders, the decision makers, that grounded view into the future. Where they can say, like, "Look, we wanted to make these hiring decisions, we wanted to make these capex decisions or OpEx decisions, and it feels like a good move, right? The market's primed, or you know whatever the case is, it feels great. But until you as the FP and A expert can come in and put numbers behind that to say, like, "Okay, this is great market opportunity, but let's look at it from a cash flow perspective. Are we putting the business?" an undue risk from a cash flow perspective if we march on this right now. And if the answer is we can't do it now, let me help you figure out when the right time might be, just as an example. And I think that so few small to medium sized businesses have that skill set on their team to be able to put some real numbers, some real tangible, hey, this is what profitability look, this is what gross margins and net margins and cash flows look like, maybe even if you, you feel comfortable, like what are the tax implications? Very few of them have that insight. And so it ends up being a gut decision on whether or not they do it. And the way I like to explain it is, you know, business owners without the forecast and projections, they'll tend to do one of two things, right? They're either gonna cross their fingers and and close their eyes and pray that that decision works out for them or they don't do anything. And both of those can be equally damning to a business or harmful to a business. So yeah, the forecast and the projections, they're everything. Now, let me say this. Forecast and projections that are not tied to the business's goals fall on deaf ears more times than not. And I think that's where a lot of folks get disconnected or where they end up feeling unheard is they're putting this great information into the forecast and projections, but they're not telling the story clear enough around what they're seeing and saying in those models are connected to the goals. You've really got to get good at connecting the forecast, the projections, the budgets, the models. You've got to get become excellent as a storyteller in showing the decision makers how what you're seeing in your opinions and your advice connects to the larger goals of the company. That's where people will hit a glass ceiling a lot of times in the, you know as a finance professional, is where the stakeholders don't feel like you're connected with the strategic goals of the company. So yeah, they're vitally important. I cannot stress enough how important they are, Paul, but equally important you've got to be able to turn that information into a story connected to the strategic goals.
0: Thank you for that explanation. And I agree they're vitally important. There's two things that really took away there that you mentioned is one, you got to be able to tell the story, take the numbers and craft that story that gets it back to the strategy. And the second is the importance of understanding strategy, right? Strategy displays itself in the P&L. If you have a good strategy, you should be seeing above average returns is the idea because it gives you a competitive advantage. You can see what's going on. One of the very first articles I wrote almost seven years ago now, when I first went down this journey that ended up leading to my business was, I think I called it something like the, the hidden skill or the underutilized skill of fp and I referred to it as strategy in the importance of you know understanding strategic frameworks and bridging that gap between the numbers and the strategy side of things. Because you're right, without that component and without the story, you become a known as a numbers jockey. Okay, oh, you're great with the numbers. And oh yeah, he can look at a whiz and he can give us insights. But can he take the next level and help us make better decisions with that, and explain why they're better decisions and they fit what we want to do?
1: When I look across, you know, like I said, I've coached hundreds of firm owners. Now there's this mindset that people that have a finance background aren't good at sales. And what I'd argue is you've got to be good at sales because in finance, whether you're an internal stakeholder as a director of FP&A or you're a firm owner you have to be good at selling ideas and selling action, right? It's no different than selling your service, you know, as a firm owner, you've got to learn how to sell your ideas and and sell the action that they need to take. So if I had to like leave your listeners with like one piece of advice is invest in books or courses or watch, you know, YouTube videos on how to tell stories. And there's some great folks on LinkedIn that talk about how to tell story with data. I'm Don't even shine a light to those guys because they're amazing. What we tend to do a lot of times is we invest on those technical skills. And I would say, make sure that you're putting as much effort into investing in those soft skills, those storytelling skills, those leadership skills, particularly around data and how to turn data into a story. That's going to be the difference if if I had to guess in you getting stuck and hitting that glass ceiling or your career going off into the C-suite or as as a firm owner, et cetera.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the best books I read, I remember I wanted to get closer to our sales team and understand sales. And this was well, maybe about three, four years ago now. And I asked our head of sales, I'm like, can you give me a recommendation for a book? And he recommended Spin Selling, which is a really good book around strategy of selling the difference between small and large. And you'll learn a ton from that. And then I totally agree. You know, learning about stories. There's so many great books, stories to stick, effective storytelling by Brent Dykes. I got to meet him about a month ago. He lives here. And so we had lunch and talked about it. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just understanding how to sell and tell that story. It's helped me a lot now that I run my own business because I do the selling. I do the marketing. I do all those things that I used to make fun of. And you know, to those people, I was in finance in particular. It's like, why can't you keep your CRM up to date or do your data? And I posted the other day going, have to apologize to all those salespeople. I realized all my data was still in emails. And I hadn't built a CRM, and one of my old CMOs goes, "Well, how's it feel to be on the other side?" And I just kind of you know, laugh, like I get it now. You can leave me alone. So definitely, that's that's a great point there. I really appreciate that. So well, next question here: When do you think is the right time for a business? To bring somebody in-house, to you know, go away from having fractional services and say, look, we're just gonna do it all in-house. How do you typically think about and advise a business on that?
1: Sure. So I'll tell you the way I tell our fractional CFO clients, because they get that a lot. Like, when does it make sense to not use a fractional CFO? When should we bring it in-house? And is somebody that's been doing this seven years, what you end up seeing is the demands of the business don't make sense for the fractional provider any longer because they just have so many dynamics and so many things going on inside the business that they really just need somebody dedicated, you know, like that 40 hours a week. Now the challenge is there are some models where you could get to, you know, we've got clients that are in the 20 plus million dollar range that aren't ready for a full-time CFO yet, but they, since we've been working with them, have hired a full-time controller, They've got an accounting manager, and then they've got, you know, AR, AP, payroll folks, right? They've built all that out. And so next will, it'll be time for them to hire a full-time CFO. You know, you've just got to have that intellectual honesty to say, are we able to provide them the level of service and value that they need as a fractional, or would it make more sense for them to hire somebody full-time? And I think that if you have the heart of service and you have a heart of providing value, it should be an easy answer for you. But that said, you know we've got $20 million plus clients that are using Fractional, but we've had $8 million revenue clients that needed full-time, right? So it really just kind of depends, but communicate and again, just kind of be honest. You'll be able to feel when it's the right time.
0: I really like how you said you feel when you're right time. You know, the complexity of the business, where they're planning on going, their technology, so many different things all play a role in, can I provide the service that I'd want myself in a fractional role?
1: Great way to look at and it. And I
0: think if the answer is no, it's time to tell them that they should consider, you know, moving on,
1: so to speak. 100%. And our goal for our clients is to graduate them to a full-time CFO. Line. Of course. Like we want our clients to win. Because that means they're a bigger bigger company. They're winning, yeah. And so that, that's always our goal is to graduate our clients to a full-time CFO.
0: That's a great goal to have. It's kind of always weird. We think, yeah, my goal is to get rid of my clients. But you get more, and that's how you build a reputation and provide value. So it makes total sense. So when you're onboarding a new client, what is the first data you like to analyze to better understand the business? What's
1: the metrics you like to see? One. This one thing is always where we start. I mean, it's, it's baked into our onboarding process at my firm. Always start with cash flow forecasting and understanding their cash position. It doesn't matter what we Find out, you know, during the sales process and what the business owner says, we always start with getting our heads wrapped around cash flow, cash flow management, you know, the ins and outs of cash flows, because it's the heart of everything. You know, like the cash flows are alpha and the omega for a business. You know, like it, it all starts and stops with cash flow. You, you don't pay payroll with profit. You don't make payroll with gross profit margin. You pay payroll with cash. So the first thing that we always dive into is really understanding where they are from a cash flow position, understanding their runway, understanding, you know, are there any lookouts or potholes coming up? You know, any danger zones, you know, so to speak, that they need to be aware of. And a lot of times the business owners have a false sense of security around their cash position. I'll give you an example where we saw this really running rampant was right after COVID, you know, the PPP money is flowing in, EIDLs are flowing in, And everybody looks at their bank account balance to get, you know, how do I feel about my cash position? But you start putting together a cash flow forecast, you're looking at the statement of cash flows. And what you start to understand is a lot of those businesses had a false sense of security because they're actually upside down. If you look at their statement of cash flows, you know, the cash from operations, you start looking at the cash flows, it's actually going down. So even though they felt good about where their cash position was, that's not always the case. So we always, always, always start with a deep dive into cash positions. And, and to do that, it really requires, you know, a bit of diligence, right? We're looking at, you know, major contracts with vendors. We're looking at major contracts with their clients. We're looking at loan documentation and amortization tape. Like we're looking at all of these things in addition to the historicals to really wrap our head around is the cash position is healthy or unhealthy? is the business owner thought when we first got started. I cannot overemphasize the importance of really doing your due diligence to understanding what that cash flow situation looks like sooner than later. It's gotta be the first thing. They always say cash
0: is king, right? And it really is true, especially in a small business. So many businesses show profit on paper, but go under because they don't have cash, right? Nobody uh, went under because they were profitable or not profitable in the P&L. They went under because they didn't have cash to continue
1: to fund the business. No business ever went bankrupt that had cash, right? You don't have any debt. You don't, you have plenty of cash. You don't go bankrupt. It's absolutely impossible. You know, I was, I had a conversation a few years ago with a, a lady. She's a licensed CPA. She worked for a tech company. Is their CFO. They had an exit. She cashed out, you know, high seven, low eight figures, right? So not an insignificant amount of cash. And she was doing some accounting work for a a friend who happened to own a concrete company, a residential concrete company. He doesn't want it anymore, right? The the balance sheet's a little messy. Cash flows aren't that great. He kind of wants out. So she says, I'm going to buy this concrete company and I think I can blow it up, right? Because there's no... Females in the space. I can really lean into that part of the branding. She picks up the business and just explodes it, right? So it went from like 400 or 500K a year in revenue. And within two or two and a half years, she had it up to $20 million. She went bankrupt because she didn't take the time to understand the cash flow challenges of that industry, right? Because typically you're paying your vendors weekly, you're paying your labor weekly, but your AR terms sometimes are like net 180 in that world. Right. So she was actually crushed by her own success because she's doing these jobs, but not getting paid net, you know, 90, 120, net 180. It's ridiculous. So that's why we always go in there. And I would everyone here, you know, if you're going into an FP&A role for a company or you're doing a fractional thing, wrap your head around those cash flows because you never know what's lurking in there and who's overlooked it.
0: you convinced me? I'll do a cash flow forecast for my business pretty easy when you're an individual of one and you have you don't have a lot of clients you still need to understand it like i watch my cash closely i totally 100% agree with that so what advice would you offer to someone who's listening and they're thinking about starting fractional cfo kind of advisory services practice what advice would you give them
1: lean into that leadership piece right really start thinking about how good are you at that piece of connecting what you're seeing in the data in connecting it to the strategic objectives of the company. And you know, ask yourself honestly like, is that something I enjoy doing? Or do I prefer to just stick to the forecast and the projection, the models, the data management? That's okay. You know, be honest with yourself. Like, do you get excited about connecting that stuff to strategy and, and helping, you know, convince CEOs what they need to do to take action? There's no right or wrong answer, but that's really what you're signing up for as a fractional, is that role. So I'd say the first thing is just ask yourself, where do I get my fulfillment? Where do I get my joy as a financial professional? And if that's not your jam, that's okay. The second thing that I would say is, you know, in business, mission is everything. But without money, we can't sustain the mission. And that means you got to go out. You got to leave the cave. You got to kill something. You got to drag it home and cook it needed. And so you've really got to be okay with the fact that you're going to have to do the, the dirty S word, sales, if you want to be a fractional. Now, here's the good news. Most people in the fractional world, they suck at sales. Like I'm telling you, I coach hundreds of them. Most of them are really bad. So you don't have to be good at sales to do a great job as a fractional. You've just got to be like, okay, like the minimum, you will do fine. The other encouraging thing I think here is you can charge, like we charged clients six, seven, eight K a month as a fractional CFO. We're not doing accounting, we're not doing bookkeeping, we're not doing taxes. This is strictly advisory work. So you don't need 400 clients to make a killing as a fractional CFO. I mean, you can make multiple six figures as a solo firm owner. 2, 3, 400 grand, 500 grand as a solo firm owner if that's what you want to do. The cool part about it is I see some challenges coming in the accounting world and to an extent in the FP&A world. The cool part is More and more businesses are learning about the fractional CFO thing. The business owner today has different expectations than business owners did even 10 years ago, certainly 20, 30 years ago. They're more forward looking. The average business owner is smarter and more informed today. And they're recognizing that the reporting isn't getting them where they need to go, that's just keeping them out of trouble with the IRS. So they're looking for more of that advisor to come alongside them and guide them and give them that strategic direction. And I think that in the next 10 or 15 years, fractional CFOs at a small business are gonna be just as common as a bookkeeper. I think that it's just gonna become a thing that small business owners look at as, as a cost to do in business. They, you gotta have them. So while there's these downward pressures and these challenges that are facing some of the other roles, I only see upside for the fractional virtual CFO space. So if that's something that's of interest to you, then I would highly encourage you to look at it because I think it's going to continue exploding over the next 10 years, regardless of what happens in the economy. I think as the economy continues to get more strained, people are gonna be looking for that strategic help. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, they'll cut the cost. And I'm like, no, if you get cut as a fractional CFO in the bad times, you're not doing your job. So I think there's a ton of opportunity if that's of interest to somebody in the FP&A world right now.
0: Thank you for that answer. And that, you know, that's great to hear. It's a lot how I feel about FP&A is, We're seeing that take off as a field becoming more and more important, you know, moving from that 10 years ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago was definitely viewed as back office. And now, you know, a lot of people see it as a value creator. It's more and more important. And early on, they want to bring somebody in because good FP and A impacts the bottom line. A good fractional CFO doesn't just manage your expenses. They help you grow. They help you make smart decisions. And so I agree with you that if you're getting yourself fired in a bad time, it's probably because you weren't doing a good job, not that you know, that
1: the economy went bad so you were the first person they thought of letting go. I, I tell folks in my coaching program all the time, if you're having conversations with any level of regularity with your clients about cutting expenses, just go ahead and know that client's probably not long for life, right? Because you, you can only survive so long on cutting expenses, you know? And what I tell people, you're operating too close to the decimal as a fractional CFO, if you're talking about cutting expenses, you want to be operating as far away from the decimal as possible. You got to be thinking big strategy stuff, not tactical. Hey, you spent you know $892 on travel last month when you only budgeted for $600. What's going on? That conversation is not going to cut it as a fractional CFO.
0: Great point. I love that example. I hadn't heard it put that way as far away from the decimal as you can be. Really good analogy there. So, you know, next question is you, you talked about the great opportunity for a fractional CFO and we talked a little bit about FP&A, but in your mind, what do you see as maybe the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge going forward for FP&A professionals?
1: The biggest opportunity is I think I've been kind of talking about this whole time, right? The opportunity for you, whether you stay at a company or you go out on your own, is be that person that's connecting all of the, the reports and the data, the dashboards, the KPIs, find ways to tell stories with it and, and to connect that, those stories with people so that it drives action. You know, If you can be that person in your company that's able to do that, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Like you said earlier, Paul, very few people have that unfair advantage where they're able to see the numbers and how it impacts operations and, you know, when you get into those senior FP&A roles, you've got the ear of the senior leaders, if not the C-suite. And if you're able to start communicating those kinds of things to them, then you're going to become invaluable. You know, you're going to be that person that's, you're at the meetings, right? You're not getting the reports from, the, you're at the meetings, you're doing the presentations, you're talking to the leadership team, and that's where you want to be from a not just a job security perspective, but frankly, from a fulfillment perspective, right? Like that's what gets you out of bed, right? Like I, I got a seat at the table. I'm a contributor now. Like what they're showing me that what I'm doing is valuable. So I think that's the upside, you know, learn how to to bridge those gaps between what you're reporting on and, and what the business is trying to do. And what'd you say? What are the downsides? Yeah.
0: Kind of what's the, maybe the biggest challenge or risk moving forward.
1: I think there's two things I look at as a risk. One is I mean, the tech and the automation, you know, gosh, it's just hard to stay current with all of it and to really keep up. And I think that, you know, if you want to survive and thrive, you got to stay on top of that stuff, you know? So I think that lends to, you know, people earlier in their careers, and it's a little harder for people that are further along in their careers. But if you want to stay relevant, if you want to stay, you know, someone that's looked upon as a thought leader. You gotta stay on top of that. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. That can be challenging. You see things like ChatGPT and now they've got an accounting version. I forget what it's called, like Chat CPA or something like that, right? It's dog crap today, but it's not gonna be crap in two years. It's coming, right? So instead of being afraid of those or dismissive, the question we gotta ask ourselves is how do we leverage that to level us up, right? How do we put that as a tool in our toolbox so that we can perform at a higher level. So I think that the tech and the automation and those things, that's challenge. The other thing that I think can be hard is like, again, that strategic thinking, right? How does the data impact strategy and direction? And when I think of that, I kind of break it into two areas. My MBA concentration was in data analytics, right? So this is kind of near and dear. But I think it's, it's a challenge to think through the data analysis and interpretation for people because we get more and more data, being able to, to analyze it and interpret it and understand what it's telling us, that's a challenge. But I think also you've got to couple that with an understanding of the industry, that whatever specific industry that you're in, along with the operations of the company you're in. And that can be a challenge, right? Because those are very distinct skill sets and there there's not a lot, a lot of overlap between them. So the ability to analyze all of this data, interpret it, what is it telling us? And then to couple that with you got to know the industry that you're serving and you've got to know the organization that you're serving and be able to marry all of that together. Very challenging. But the people that are going to succeed, they're going to figure that out.
0: Great point around marrying the data and bringing in the opportunity. And I also really liked what you said about technology, like chat GPT and learning to utilize that and other things that are coming because the reality is it's out of the box. It's not going back in. So embrace it or be left behind when it comes to technology at
1: least that's the way i view it it's here it's not coming it's here start playing with it start learning it i mean if you think this is you know 2 3 years away you're already a year or two behind i would agree with you i talk to vendors every week in this space
0: and i'm seeing what they're doing and it's here you know seeing announcements and we'll see a lot more over the next few months so exciting times so now there's a couple of standard questions we like to ask everybody a little bit more personal questions so first one here is what is something unique about you that you can
1: tell us? Something we wouldn't find online. Something unique that you wouldn't find online. Well, my wife and I are adopting right now. So we're going through the process of of adopting here. Thanks. In the state of Texas, we're pretty excited about that. I don't think I've ever talked about that online before. So that's something that's unique. Great. Well, congratulations on that. Hope that all goes well. An exciting time for you. So scary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Do you have kids now or will this be your first? No, we're we're going right into kiddos that are in CPS, you know, in the foster system yeah. and uh, adopting those. So
0: I knew a family I was good friends with that they weren't able to have children and probably about 40 at this point. And they went through CPS. and They ended up with the foster family of five kids all at once. And they ad- ended up adopting them a family, and I watched that
1: change and I'm like, I can't even imagine. so my wife would sign up for that in a heartbeat, and I'm everything that I can do to limit it like let's just start with one or two. no more than two. If she found five of them though it'd, it'd be hard to keep her away. Good luck. I, that's great that you're doing that.
0: We need people that can help the children they're in those situations. So pray that all goes well for you and that that's great. So you know next question we like to ask, and this is kind of one of my favorite questions. I think it's fun to see the different answers. What is your favorite Excel formula, kind of feature
1: function? What's your favorite thing about Excel? I'm not an Excel guy. (laughs) I knew that question was coming. I'm not passionate about spreadsheets, you know? And so for me, anything where I can easily identify trends and outliers, it's weird. I have master's classes in data analytics. For me as a business owner or as a fractional CFO, I want to be able to spot trends and I want to be able to spot outliers, things that require attention quickly and easily. So for me, like conditional formatting and those kind of things that show like heat maps or, you know, trend lines, those are my favorites because they're the most impactful for me. You know, interesting as a nuclear engineer and a CFO, I'm not a details guy, you know, who knew? I'm not a details guy. So I love to just be able to look at, at data sets really quickly. And uh, be able to pull out those things that I need to, to make decisions.
0: Conditional formatting, heat maps, like you mentioned, trend lines, those type of things are great at quickly being able to say, OK, something's amiss here. What happened in this month? And then, get, you know, get to the answer.
1: And look, those things, they enabled me to ask smarter questions. And so that's what I'm looking for is how can I ask smarter questions based on this data set?
0: I like that. Smarter questions based on the data set. Great way to look at it. So, you know, last question here and then we'll give you a minute to tell people how they can learn more about you if they're interested in connecting. What advice would you offer to someone starting their career in FP&A today?
1: Huge upside. Like we talked about earlier, the skill sets that you've learned to get into FP&A and the skill sets that you're going to continue to develop in your career, they're remarkable and they're impactful. You know, when I think of all the different roles in a company whether you're a business owner or you're working in, in a company, there's very few, and I would say, like, I could put up a case that there's none that can drive more impact, more change, more growth, more health in a business than somebody that's in that, like, FPA role or a strategic financial role. There's very few decision makers, very few folks in a business that have the opportunity because of, like, we talked about earlier, that unfair advantage that you have. And so if you're somebody that gets really excited about having an impact and making a change, you are in the career that if you do it well, you can probably do that to an extent far beyond anybody else other than the CEO of the company. So what would I tell you if you're doing it? I would say, keep grinding, stay curious, keep learning. Uh, That curiosity, I can't stress enough how important it is to be curious and, and to be hungry to learn from other people. You know, keep that hunger for curiosity and you can really have a, a massive impact, whether it's on the business that you're in or as a fractional, you can do that, you know, at a larger scale sometimes. But I, I think, you know, stay with it. It's, it's an amazing career to be in and you can really change the game for a lot of people. Let me give you a quick example of it because people are like, how do we do that? OK, in an fp a role is let's just say, let's take the cash example, right? And you're looking for ways for businesses to increase cash flow. If you do your job as someone in FP&A or as a fractional CFO whatever and you're able to free up cash flow, where do you think Christmas bonuses come from? Where do you think raises come from? Those bonuses, those raises, those additional hires, those are the things that pay mortgages, those are the things that pay hospital bills, those are the things that fund retirements for people. You have the ability to let people have more money, to be able to thrive more in their personal lives directly because of the work you do in FPNA. And and i am like, name one other role in a business that has the opportunity to impact real people in real families. I don't think you can do it. I really like that.
0: So thank you for that answer and totally agree. Staying curious is so important. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you or learn more, what's the best way?
1: Well, I'm all over the LinkedIn. So you can just search for Michael King on LinkedIn. I'm the bald guy. My photos don't have this handsome beard yet, but you can find me on LinkedIn or you can go to the CFOaccelerator.com. And like I said, we've got our free newsletter, the podcast, the YouTube, you'll find links to all of that stuff at the CFOAccelerator.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you for your time today, Michael, and for sharing that information. We'll put it in the show notes and you have a uh... Great day and thanks again for uh, sharing some time with our audience.
1: It was an honor to be here and serve. Thanks for having me, Paul.